Bill Ayers is a former leader of the Weather Underground and a professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. This is Bill Ayers. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. I am here with uh, Bill Ayers. Uh, sir, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, sir. Are we going to call each other, sir? <laughs> we, let's move. Let's move we, beyond that. Well, we we don't we don't have to do that. Okay. okay. Um, I'll call you Duncan if you call me Bill. Uh, fair enough. Yes, I'm, I'm trying. And, and, the sir also, you know, reminds me of how old I am, and um, you know, I, it's happened to me many times. But I I often then think of my son Malik when he was five. I got my doctorate, and he was outside the examining room and I came out and he, his first question was, did you win? And I wanted to say, yeah, I kicked the shit out of those professors. But yeah. I said, yeah, I, I got my, I'm a doctor. And he said, well, you're not a doctor who can help anybody. Right. And I always remember that. So don't call me doctor and don't call me sir. And we'll be in business. Fair enough. Yes. Okay. Um, well, Listen, I, I'm. There's so many things I, I want to talk to you about. Uh, it's impossible to cover like an, the entire span of a life, you know, in a, in a podcast. But um, you have, you have, uh, you were big uh, leader in, in the anti-war movement. You were uh, uh, on the FBI's most wanted list at one point. Um, People, some people think that you uh, single-handedly installed Barack Obama in the White House. <laughs> um, yeah. you, you've lived a, a very uh, rich and colorful life, and yet you were born in a pretty like mild suburb of Glen Ellen, Illinois. I, I mean, and your father was a, a you know a Commonwealth Edison uh, executive. Like how? I'm, I'm trying to understand how this train got in motion. Like, how did you, um, you talk about in your book, Fugitive Days, like reading like Marx and stuff like that in high school. What, was there an initial spark that you look back to and see as being a sort of a turning point? Yeah. Well, let me just say a couple of quick corrections. One is I was never on the 10 most wanted list of the FBI. Okay. That was a 10 most wanted list was J. Edgar Hoover's public relations stunt. My wife was on the 10 most wanted oh, list and was, the, and was the first, and she lasted the longest on the 10 most wanted list without ever being arrested. And she oh. shared the 10 most wanted list in those years with uh, Angela Davis and Susan Sachs and Rap Brown. And it was quite a, it, you know, the 10 most wanted list when J. Edgar Hoover started, it was a group of plug uglies that they could sweep that who robbed a bank in Kansas, you know, and oh. they could sweep down and bust them. But, in the 70s, it became a pretty glamorous uh, group of radicals. Yes. So my wife was one of them. And I was on, I was on the FBI's uh, list, but not, I didn't make it to the top tier, which I think always disappointed my mother because she wanted <laughs> me to be successful in anything yes. I undertook. And yes, I grew up in Glen Ellen, Illinois. My father was the, actually the chairman of Commonwealth Edison, the electric monopoly in Chicago for 30 years and so i was grown i was born you called it a mild suburb it was a uh, yeah very kind of low-key place and i was raised in the kind of the 1950s an era of tremendous denial and um mm -hmm. you know a, a, a an era in the united states of peak oil peak prosperity peak you know um opportunity for white people living in the suburbs. And right. then, you know, the 60s cracked that open, or really the, the 50s cracked open with the beginning of the civil rights movement. And, and that's the spark. 
Duncan. That was the spark for me. The spark was I was in a prep school north of Chicago. I do write about the fact that I read Marx in high school. I read Marx because a history professor wanted us to read him to understand what a lunatic he was. And in writing my memoir 25, 30 years later, I, you know, I refer to that as kind of a moment of, of um, fun, fun tweaking of that teacher, but it wasn't, I wasn't drawn to Marx at that point. I did learn a lot from Marx later, but what really got to me, I was in a, I was in a prep school and the civil rights movement was setting the moral agenda of the country penetrating the deep, deep sleep of America, uh, of, of dominant America um, through activism. And I was ensconced in this little, you know, uh, prep school up north of Chicago, a boarding school, and the civil rights movement made its way in. And I got a hold of James Baldwin's um, The Fire Next Time, and it absolutely staggered me. It, it, it blew my mind to see a description of my world from a different vantage point, And it really moved me. And so when I went away to Michigan in 1963, I went to the University of Michigan. SDS, Students for Democratic Society, was just launching there. The anti-war movement picked up tremendous steam in 1965. And I was, and, and the civil rights movement was already very much as I say, defining the moral space of the country. And I was drawn to that as a young person. And I got involved really early and it not only changed the trajectory of my life, but it gave my life a purpose and a meaning that I never imagined. And uh, I feel very grateful to have been alive when the social movements reached out and grabbed me uh, and took me off the kind of predictable path that I was walking down. Um, so here we are, this kind of ruling class, you know, upper class family, uh, even though my father was culturally very modest and always drove a Chevrolet and so on. But, but we were this really ruling class family and <clears throat> they had five children in my birth family and three of us became members of Students for a Democratic Society. So my mom would say to me, uh, you know, around 1966, 67, she'd say, I don't understand you but I know you're good people. And she ended up starting a little group of ruling class women called uh, Women Against the War in Vietnam or something like that. It was a little ladies group. Um, but so I, okay, so Baldwin penetrated the walls around my prep school and the walls around my little island of denial where the lawns were always green and the fences always white and you know everything perfect um, in a very delusional way. Um, but I feel like I was ready for a lot of, a lot of reasons. I think that one of the things about the privilege that you're describing growing up, never hungry, never, um, you know, never fearing that you were going to get swept under by the, uh, hostile job market and so on gave you the, gave me the freedom to think and explore and wonder. And that was a, a very lovely thing. The thing I always feel though, Duncan, about privilege, and I feel this very strongly in myself, even to this day, is that the real problem with privilege is not that people should immediately jump to feeling um, guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. You didn't ask for your privilege. You were thrust into the world like everybody else. Nobody, you didn't ask for the parents you got, nor, nor did I. 
You didn't ask for white skin. You didn't ask to be a male. I mean, you know, all these things just happened to you. So the point is not to jump quickly to guilt and shame. The point is to notice that the real insidious problem of privilege is that it anesthetizes you, that it's designed to put you to sleep. So if you can't see as a white person that there are black people, if you can't see as, as an able-bodied person that there are people in wheelchairs, if you're blinded to that reality, then privilege did its disgusting work. But if you say to yourself, I don't wanna be half asleep, I don't wanna go sleepwalking through my life, then you force yourself willfully and you know, sometimes accidentally, luckily, you push yourself to open your eyes to a world that you didn't, that wasn't just offered to you. And for me, opening my eyes in 1963, four, five, was opening my eyes to a world in flames. And the kind of delusional world that I grew up in began to fall away. And I began to seek out voices that ex could explain to me, given the cocoon and, and sleepwalking nature of my privilege could penetrate that and tell me something different. And James Baldwin was my first guide and he was astonishing. But frankly, I, I, meant, I mentioned to you earlier, Raul Peck is a guide for me right now. Um, uh, uh, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz is a guide for me right now. Miriam Kaba with her new book, um, We Do This Till We Free Us is a guide for me right now. So you have to keep searching. Um, I, I'll give you one other example. It just pops to my mind. I don't know if you've seen the movie Crip Camp. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. It was nominated for an Academy Award, and it's an astonishing documentary about a group of disabled kids in the 1970s and in the 60s and 70s who were, came to a summer camp and found each other. And given the you know zeitgeist of the day, got into rock and roll and music and drugs and sex. And by finding each other and naming a common obstacle to their common situation, built the disability rights movement. And all the things that we learned, all the activism that came out in the 70s and 80s that awakened many of us to a world we had no idea existed, came from this little camp in upstate New York and they made a documentary using footage from before as well as interviews with folks today. And it's called Crip Camp and it's on Netflix. And it's really a must see because it's a, it's really a documentary that explains organizing, explains activism in a world that, you know, many viewers wouldn't be familiar with. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it seems like in a, like during that time, there was like a gradual unfolding of consciousness where there was an anti-war movement and people started organizing. And then a lot of the women in the anti-war movement started speaking up and that evolved into its own uh, movement as well. But also personally for you, it, it seemed like this was like you describe in your, your in the book Fugitive Days, when you first came back, you, you dropped out, became a merchant marine and then mm -hmm. came back. And you were thinking about enlisting to join in the war in Vietnam. How, how that seems so unexpected. How did that happen? Well, uh, you know, your, your, your uh, litany of how things happen, I think is absolutely right. But I would, I would put the first, the first thing that, that leads to 
the next thing is really the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement, or the modern iteration of a centuries old movement for black freedom. And that is the civil rights movement of the fifties and sixties. <clears throat> and I mentioned that because you're right, then comes the anti-war movement, but what was the anti-war movement if not a group awakened by the civil rights movement, borrowing strategy and tactics directly from the civil rights movement. So my first arrest was a civil disobedience inside a draft board. Where did we get that tactic? Why did we sit in at the draft board? Well, we borrowed it from the black freedom movement, right? So that then leads to the women's movement, which leads to the queer movement, which leads to the disability rights movement. I mean, in other words, these things are, um, they are kind of, uh, you know, contagious and in, in the best possible way. And that's also why power wants to always stamp them out wherever they are. And it doesn't matter what the movement is. Power's desire is to get rid of it because it will spread. And this is, this is true globally as well. When, when they used to talk about the domino theory, you know, if one country goes to communism, the next will. And Noam Chomsky helpfully in those days explained to me that the domino theory is true in the sense that the ideas will spread. It's not that literally that these commies are taking over those commies, but the idea that workers could be free, the idea that a country could be free of its colonial master, those ideas spread and they become contagious. So I, I think that's uh, really, really important. And there, now I've lost the thread of your first question. I'm sorry, because I, I got going, I apologize. <laughs> I, I was saying, so, when you first came back to the university oh right and and you were thinking about joining and enlisting in in oh, the, right and then you you go to this anti-war meeting and right. and, and change your mind but right. take me through the thought process there why did you want to well, you know i i i joined the Birch marines i had i had left college and was part of the civil rights movement but i had really left college with a vengeance. I, I found it irrelevant and meaningless given what was going on. And I joined the Merchant Marines. I'd never heard of, of um, Vietnam or anything, but I had this kind of romantic notion. I was a Merchant Marine, meaning I wasn't in the military service. I was a sailor in the merchant you know, um, uh, world. So I was, I was on a ship carrying um, grain to Greece. Uh, it was called... Um, something for peace it was it was yeah it was the idea of the program was taking american agricultural products and spreading them around the world to you know combat communism um so i was a merchant marine i was in athens greece and i was in constitution square reading the um herald tribune <clears throat> the english newspaper as the first time i'd heard of vietnam i knew nothing about it but my kind of romantic, young, 19-year-old self was thinking, well, I, I, I'm getting out of college. I'm not going that direction. I should do something. What should I do? I'll join the service. It wasn't thought out, and it wasn't certainly a patriotic gesture. It was a question of wanting to live, wanting to have experience, wanting to go on the road, you know, and it, it had the same kind of, uh, you know, emotional meaning to me at that moment or the same kind of intellectual depth as saying, I think I'll hitchhike across the country. It didn't mean, it, it was not a commitment in any sense, but I came back to Ann Arbor and uh, a friend of mine, uh, a young woman from New York took me to my first anti-war movement. And I understood, I think very quickly um, 
that we were on the wrong side of world history and that the United States was and that we had to do something to stop it. And again, a lot of the veterans of the civil rights movement were in the room, a lot of people who knew a lot more than I did. And I got kind of, I got educated the way that, the way public education works or the way kind of, when I say public education, I mean education in the public sphere, in the public square. And so I was drawn into going to a demonstration. I didn't have much in mind, you know, and that demonstration led to the next demonstration. I, I participated in a meeting in Ann Arbor, uh, the first international days of protest. And the first meeting, the president of Students for a Democratic Society stood up and said um, to this audience of a couple hundred students, you have to find a way to live your life that doesn't make a mockery of your values. And that phrase not only stuck in my mind and it kind of motivated the next several years of activity. It's still in my mind. How do you live your life in a way that doesn't make a mockery of your values? And it, it assumes, A, that you have values or that you can access them or that you can build them. And B, you can try to plot out a life plan that says, I want to live consistently with those values. You will fail every day. You'll fall short every day. But that doesn't mean you throw them away. You still post them on your wall and try to live up to them. So peace and justice and black liberation um, uh, became for me um, kind of important guides for what I wanted to do next and next after that. And how, when you first decide, okay, I want to join this cause, this war is wrong. At this point, how much, um, and when you speak about education, how did you how educated were you on like the facts like the gritty details of uh of the war in vietnam at that point or or did that come later well in the first international days of protest two things happened one is um students had wanted the faculty to go on strike to have a strike against the war in vietnam this was at michigan this is the first teach-in and the evolution of it is that a group of students, which I was peripherally a part of, were trying to convince the faculty to go on strike to oppose the war in Vietnam. The faculty had some very emotionally charged meetings about whether they should, and they decided it's against the kind of ethos of being a professor to go on strike because then we're withholding education. And instead, we will dedicate a day to teaching about Vietnam. That was a big victory from our point of view. So that became then a teach-in. That is, English teachers taught literature, history teachers taught history, but everybody said something about Vietnam. And um, simultaneously, there was a Marine recruiter at, on campus at one of the tables in the center of campus. And a young man uh, put up a, a large quote from the Nuremberg trials, which talked about individual responsibility for genocide and the atrocities of war. And he put this large quote up on the wall with an arrow pointing to the Marine recruiter. And the, and, and the arrow said, this man is a war criminal. And it caused pandemonium on campus, just like today is Memorial Day. And so, you know, people are being patriotic in spite of themselves. But this was an absolute finger in the eye of these, these Marine recruiters, which is as regular as rain have military recruiters on campus it was what happened but this guy was putting a finger in this guy's eye pandemonium big debates and my brother and i my younger brother who was a freshman i was um, 
a putative junior. Um, and we got a hold of a fact sheet that the young socialists had put together called 100 Facts About Vietnam. And we really found it wildly educational. You know, the first fact was um, Dwight Eisenhower said in 1954, if there were a fair election, Ho Chi Minh would win 80% of the vote in all of Vietnam. And we we're like, wow, you know, amazing. And it quoted from the, um, from the uh, Constitution of Vietnam um, uh, or the Declaration of Independence. And it quoted a line from the US Declaration of Independence. And so everything about it was amazing. And it was amazing how small Vietnam was. It was amazing what kind of force the French had brought against them and so on. So I was educated. I was educated through dialogue in the center of campus, very fierce. And my brother and I were standing together talking and we heard a couple of students near us say, don't talk to those guys, meaning me and my brother. They sound, they're a couple of Jews from New York who've memorized the fact sheet. And we were so proud. Yeah. We thought, God, do we sound that good? I mean, okay, we had memorized the fact sheet, but, but you know, we were, we were not experienced and we were not from a political family and we didn't know how to engage in political debate, but we were learning by doing, which is the best way to learn. And we were learning rapidly in the public square, in the public debate. And so when SDS called for a sit-in at the draft board, we had a rally on campus and there were so many interesting tactics, Duncan. I mean, one of my favorite tactics, the same guy who put up the, the Nuremberg quote, put out a leaflet saying, we're gonna shoot a dog on the center of campus in protest of the war in Vietnam at noon on Friday. We're gonna shoot a dog. And um, just to show you how horrible shooting is. And thousands of people came because to stop the idiots from shooting a dog. And then of course, they had a leaflet that said, we're not shooting a dog, but by the way, 6,000 Vietnamese were killed this week. And again, it was right. clever, it was performative, it was interesting, and it was educational. So the decision was made to have a rally on campus and to march the couple miles to the draft board and to disrupt the draft board. For those who don't know, you can Google it, but the draft board was the selective service, which selected young men at that time uh, to be drafted into the military and, and in some cases sent to Vietnam. So we agreed that we would, we agreed that we'd have a rally and then we'd march and those who wanted to would sit in at the draft board and try to disrupt its normal functioning. I met with my younger brother over breakfast and we had each been struggling with whether we would do it. I decided I would do it. He decided he wouldn't do it, but he would have the harder job of explaining to my parents why I was in jail. And so that's what happened. That was my first arrest. And again, talk about what's educational. I'm so glad you got suspended from school um, <laughs> because that's educational. I mean, that's education. Yes. That's the best of education. And my oldest son uh, on the day before he was to graduate from college was arrested uh, in, a, in a, I think a really righteous cause. And again, that's education. That was the best thing that happened to him in four years of, of uh, college because he got arrested the last day. But I think that this propels you into seeing the world differently. So I went to you know, Ann Arbor, Washtenaw County Jail and I was sentenced eventually to 15 days in jail. And I did my time in jail, right? And that was educational. I mean, I'd never been inside a jail or a prison 
given my you know background and my life path but it was educational what does america look like you know from inside a jail cell and now of course that's more relevant than it's ever been in our history so i don't know that that was part of it that that um the trajectory was one of opening your eyes paying attention being astonished not seeing it as normal and then doing something and 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 that is the rhythm to me of leading a moral life, leading a, a socially engaged life, or leading a, an activist life. And, and just for context, when you talk about the whole uh, shooting a dog on campus, part of the point, if it's not lost on people, is that, hey, you would all turn up if someone said they were going to commit this act of violence. So exactly. why, not, why not turn up for this other act of violence that's going on in Vietnam? Exactly. And the abstracting of the violence of Vietnam, you know, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to believe when I put it this way, but looking back, the war in Vietnam, the American assault and occupation of Vietnam lasted 10 years. Every week, 6,000 people were killed. Every week. And it, it, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 9-11 every week in Vietnam with no end in sight. I mean, now we can say, oh, it was 10 years, 3 million dead. Yeah, I mean, that's what you can say now. And it's, it's got some kind of frame around it. But when it's going on, you don't have any idea. It, it could be forever. Uh, it could be 30 years. And so acting, intervening in that without any guarantees, without any certainty of our impact was an act of faith and an act of courage and an act of hope. But it's the same thing if you think about the, the um, Warsaw uh, you know, ghetto uprising. You think about, I mean, people act because they feel they have to act against the injustice that's happening right in front of them. And if you live insulated in a suburb like Glen Ellen, Illinois, or in a country like the United States, then that insulation allows you to deny what's going on in your name. 6,000 people a week being killed. Okay, we said we'd kill one dog, right? And that outraged people. 6,000 human beings this week will be killed because of your government. And that was an attempt to wake people up. And after you got uh, thrown in jail the first time, was that when you became like a professional, uh, I don't know, were you activist, revolutionary, et cetera? <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think I make a distinction. I mean, I think that these things evolve. I think I became politicized um, through the civil rights movement and in the kind of early mid 60s. I think I became committed to being, I, I think every, everything that I did, every step that I took, my understanding became deeper of what was really going on. And I became a radical in the sense that Ella Baker describes radical, which she says means going to the root. So I wanted to end a war. When I realized that there was a system that made war predictable and inevitable, then I wanted to end the system. That's becoming a radical. And I would say that happened, yeah, around 1965 when I was first um, engaged in stuff. And I mean, first engaged kind of getting arrested and going to demonstrations and so on. But I think that then um, there's another couple of steps. One is I was an activist, but I wasn't yet an organizer. And I think those things are different. And I think that Activism is important, and all organizers are activists, but all activists are not organizers. And that means, to me, what that means is if you actually are a radical 
and you become convinced that your job really is to organize other people. Then you have to become an organizer. Activism fits into that. I mean, you can make lots of decisions to not only express your outrage in the street, but literally to try to stop, for example, um, the Dakota Pipeline. That's kind of a, a, right. an activism that's meant to be a piece of an organizing strategy. It's not just expressing my outrage. It's, it's thinking through a tactic that will bring attention to it. So I was very involved in national mobilizations against the war, in mobilizations in Chicago and in Washington, but all in the, in the terms of being an organizer. So what we, if we wanted to go to Washington, we wanted to go to Washington to take the people we'd been organizing and to create a moment where the people we wanted to organize could be educated on a larger scale more quickly. So activism and organizing. And then I think I began to think of myself as a revolutionary um, later in the 1960s, 68, 69. And I still do in the sense that I think we need a, a, a revolution in order to resolve any of the crises we're facing, the crisis of the environment, the crisis of racial reckoning, the crisis of, of um, uh, governmental um, credibility, the crisis of truth. I don't think we can get beyond where we are if we don't have a revolution. And as Martin Luther King said in 1968, a revolution in values that could lead to a revolution in fact. And King said in his most famous speech, or to me, his greatest um, summation of where he was in those last years, uh, his speech beyond Vietnam at Riverside Church, where he named the three evils of racism, militarism, and materialism. And he called for the United States to join the world revolution on the right side because they were on the wrong side. And in that sense, I think that I became a revolutionary in 1968. I still believe that we need a massive upheaval from below in which power shifts, shifts hands. That is where the powerless become powerful, where, we, um, where capitalism is um, put in the graveyard where it belongs and where we find some way to organize a democratic socialist um, society. And I think, it's, I think it's not only doable, it's essential. We have to do it. And I, when I was first writing a memoir when I was underground, which I never published, I called it In Our Lifetime. And the idea was, we're going to have a revolution in our lifetime. And I still, I'm now 75. I still want to have a revolution in our lifetime. So uh, it's up to you. It's up to the youth, but I'll be there. I'll be there in my wheelchair or my walker. I'll be on the, on the barricade. There you but, go. Uh, but I intend to be a part of it. Um, it, I talked to a guy named uh, Tamim Ansari, uh, who was uh, involved. He, he described himself as like a hippie back in the '60s and '70s, and he was. Um, uh, I think he was in Seattle or Portland, and he was living in a commune, and then. Um, he described the attitude of that time as everyone kind of believed that, okay, we're headed for collapse and collapse soon. And that's also common nowadays among a lot of people on the left, especially with the, the threat of climate change, people saying, okay, well, now we're really headed for collapse. Do you feel like sometimes it, it, it feels premature to describe, uh, like it, it seems like even Marx in his lifetime was saying, oh, we're we're in late stage or we're starting to see it go down. Like it, the feudalism went on for 
you know, almost half a millennia. So do you, uh, do you think there's some jump in the gun going on here? You know, I, I think it's impossible to say. I mean, I think that, um, I think that the, the real distinction I would make about, uh, about the 60s is we thought we were headed for collapse. Absolutely. We thought the society was, was coming unglued. And I thought particularly that the ruling class was in a revolutionary crisis with the masses of people. In other words, it couldn't resolve the crisis. So we were headed, you know, who could have predicted um, the internet? But in any case, um, you know, and a lot of other shit. But uh, yeah, I thought, but the, the real distinction about that moment for a whole group of young people, not the majority, but a significant number of young people is we thought we had within our hands the power to change the world. We, we believed it. And, and that motivated us to get out of bed with a certain confidence and a certain hopefulness and a certain uh, willingness to a certain amount of courage, right? We could summon a certain amount of courage because we thought we were on the precipice of something and that we actually could make that difference. I think the feeling of heading toward collapse is very common, especially among old people. I tell people in my generation, you know, um, it's very common for old people to think the world's coming to an end. But at some point, the old people who think that are going to have it right. Yeah. So who the fuck knows, right? But, um, but, but I think that, that to take Marx as one example, um, he was not wrong that we were in the last stages of capitalism. It's just that as Americans, we think it should happen instantaneously. You know, if you say the revolution is coming, if it's not here in 30 days, well, what the fuck, you know, am I supposed to stick around for 35 days? I mean, you know, and, and that's one of the problems we have with our toxically individualistic society and our toxically live in the present without any past and without any future society. Those are our cultural norms that undermine us in many ways. So, yeah, I think that, I think that we are in the last stages of, capitalist empire. I don't think capitalism can go on indefinitely, um, you know, uh, expanding, overproducing, you know, and so on without meeting its uh, Waterloo. Uh, is it coming this year or next year? It's, who knows? I don't know. But do I think people who see it and understand it should mobilize themselves and organize and build social movements and build organizations and struggle with questions like leadership and how do we figure this stuff out together? Yeah, I think we should. And I don't think we should wait a, a, an extra minute. But I, 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 have a, I have a much longer, I think, sense of history now than I once did. Yeah. I'm always reminded, you know, I'm always reminded of, um, I'm always reminded of Zhou Enlai, the premier of China and a Chinese revolutionary asked at the end of World War II, what the impact by a French journalist, what was the impact of the French revolution of the 19th century, of the 18th century on the Chinese revolution of the 20th century? And Joe and Lai thought for a minute and then he said, it's too soon to tell. Right, 200 years, it's too soon to tell. What was the impact of this on that? And of course, we immediately know, we take a poll and we know what caused what, but that's bullshit. We don't actually know what caused what. We're still figuring it out. And whatever the so-called 60s was, which I always think of as the so-called 60s, because nobody that I remember in late 1969, December 1969, looked at their watch and said, oh shit, it's almost over. 
let's go get high. I mean, we did go and get high, but nobody thought anything was coming to an end. Decades are just marketing, right? So I think it's really important to um, understand that we're in the flow of history. We should look at history and understand history. We should, we should be positing, we should be talking about the world we're trying to build, not because we can make a map or a plan, things will unfold in unpredictable ways, but precisely to keep us morally and politically and engaged in the right way. You know, the South African revolution, um, and I know a lot of South African revolutionaries, and they used to, in the height of the war against apartheid, they would retreat and talk about a vision of, 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 of a, a society free of racism. And they did that so that they wouldn't make mistakes in the present. And I think that's really a beautiful thing. We can't predict exactly, we can't predict at all. We can't lay out a map to the future, but we should know its broad outlines. We should know what it would mean to live in a world of joy and justice and fairness and equity and ethical principles guiding our political actions. We should know that, we should work toward it. You mentioned, and this is, uh... I mean, not a, a major question, but you mentioned the, the getting high. How, I'm always curious, how big of a, a deal was LSD at the time? Was that as, was it overhyped, underhyped? Did it play a role in the political scene? Well, it depends on who you ask, I suppose. For, for, for us, there are two, re two things that were important. I mean, one is we were in a cultural moment um, and we were young people. So you know, the fact that we talked about and wrote about sex in the way that we did was um, we, we had an older comrade um, named Annie Stein and we were in a meeting once and she, she was probably 30 years older than all of us and she was great, but, and she'd been a communist her whole life. And Annie finally looked at us and said, you talk about sex as if you invented it. And of course we said, well, we did, you know, I mean, doesn't everybody? And, you know, I, I think that there's, um, there is something funny about, uh, about thinking you're, you know, it's the first time and everything, nothing has ever happened before. On the other hand, I do think that um, it's important that young people look at, look at themselves and summon the courage. I mean, you mentioned earlier something that I, I wanted to get back to, which is student debt. I mean, one of the remarkable things about my generation is we didn't have any debt. You right. know, there wasn't, I mean, it, you, you have to kind of look at it and say, isn't this kind of a, isn't this a, a, a plan, a plot, a conspiracy? to make you guys all wearing handcuffs when you graduate from college? Because, because we didn't. I went to the University of Michigan as an out-of-state student. I paid $350 a semester. Oh. So there was no debt. <laughs> right, right. And kids who went to Ivy League colleges, which were more expensive then, but nothing like today. I mean, their parents paid for it. There was no, I mean, it's not that there were student loans. There were some student loans, but it wasn't like today. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, trillions of dollars of debt. So I think there is something entangling about that. And my feeling is, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting that the, the government today is talking about relieving some of the debt. I think there should be a social movement of all of us who are paying off student debt. I'm still paying off my kids. Um, I think we should have a social movement that says cancel the debt, not, not give me $10,000 or a, a little time relief. No, cancel the fucking debt. Right. because that would liberate us to be the people we want to be 
and that kind of indentured servants to capital. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it has I, I lost the thread of the, where we were going, though. No, so. I, I was I was asking. Well, I think my original question was about um, LSD. Was that something? Let's go back to that. Yeah. Okay. So LSD was important to us for a couple of reasons. One is we not only invented sex, but we invented drugs. And um, we were in a youth culture for which uh, drugs were really important. Marijuana was really important. And there were a couple of things about that. One is marijuana really is great. And, and to have it be illegal while our parents' generation was all getting drunk on scotch seemed hypocritical and stupid. So we were all smoked dope. But there's a couple other things about it. One, LSD too. I, I took LSD several times in the 60s. Um, and I found it both exhilarating and terrifying. But be, because I was part of a generation that we, we had a bunch of things going on. We had an illegal network for abortion, for abortions. And that was something that a lot of young people participated in. That is creating the possibility of helping young women um, control their own bodies in a world where that was completely illegal and marijuana was illegal. So I was part of two undergrounds, you know, at least before, you know, before I was, you know, so-called underground. I mean, living illegally, living on the margins was part of it. So LSD, the drug scene was in part being part of an underground and being part of, um, I guess, every day, because I, I smoked marijuana lots of, a lot. I mean, every day, probably. So every day I was doing my anarchist calisthenics by breaking the law a little bit, you know, so that when it came time to break the law a big bit, uh, I was prepared. My muscles were toned. I knew how to be uh, an illegal person. Second thing that happened though with LSD, and I don't think it was, it was widespread. I don't think everybody did it. And it really was both exhilarating and terrifying. But the second thing is that it led to us breaking Timothy Leary out of prison. And that became a very important um, action that we undertook when we were underground. Now, this is a few years later, but Timothy Leary was the Harvard professor and LSD guru who was arrested and, and sentenced to prison in, in California. And we were contacted by his um, organization uh, through our lawyers, and we were asked if we could participate or figure out a way to get him out of prison. And we put our minds to it as only a group of kind of uh, anarchist intellectuals can. And we came up with a plan that was pretty foolproof to break him out of prison. And we had a lot of dissension inside the organization about whether we should do it. Should we do it? Because, I mean, you know, drugs, man, and Leary. I mean, look at the other people in prison. What are we doing getting Leary out of prison? But we decided as a group that we would do it and that we would hone our skills. Um, we, had, we would develop a new skill set, which was called breaking people out of prison. And, uh, and we did break Leary out of prison. We got him safely to Algeria, um, which was a remarkable action. And then we did use those skills later in actions that weren't publicized. In which we did participate in breaking people out of prison. I'm sorry. How, how did you get him out of prison? What, what was like? Just you, you don't. It's all up in your head. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's using. I mean, it like everything else we undertook, like getting false identities, like getting safe apartments, like getting safe automobiles. All this stuff 
is partly a problem of thinking. And, and we were people who were prone to overthinking. So it was, it was in our wheelhouse to think these things up. But what we did with Tim is that um, he had been transferred to a minimum security prison near San Luis Obispo. And we spent a lot of time studying the weather. Um, you know, go figure. But we figured that San Luis Obispo is on the coast. It has a very intense foggy season. And in the foggy season, it's predictable when the fog is going to come in and when it's going to go out. And we figured, so we took, that was one calculation. The other thing was that we knew that Tim could get out of his dormitory and get to a um, electric line, a phone line and an electric line. And if he had the strength, he could go hand over hand over the fence. And um, it would take him a long time and he'd have to be very strong. And this guy was in his sixties, I think at the time. And so we figured that out and we put that into the plan. And then we figured out how to get the perfect escape team to pick him up at a perfect spot and drive him with a couple of stops to Canada. How to get him false ID, which again, an intellectual problem, how to take his prison uniform once he got picked up and drive it south 20 miles and leave it in a gas station so that the police would go south. Mm-hmm. and you know and things like that yeah. so it was it was as i say it was more thinking than almost anything but it took a certain amount of courage um certainly took courage on his part but it also took a certain amount of courage to we, we left at the point where he could drop over the prison there was a an abandoned railroad siding and we told him to head north on the railroad siding until he saw a statue of the buddha and at that point, he should turn left and go to the highway at where there was a pickup spot. So, you know, we had these details that I remember that were hilarious. Um, but he was right on it. He shimmied his way over the wall. He went north on the railroad siding. He found the Buddha. He moved to the highway. And there was a camper with a middle-class family camping. He jumped in the back and the middle-class family drove him to San Francisco. Wow. That's and and obviously this is um, from a part of your life where you're, uh, I, I believe you said you were already underground at this point. Uh, is that right. okay? And, yeah, we went underground as an organization. I mean, we were leaders of Students for a Democratic Society, which had split into several factions at that point. But we were a, a militant faction of Students for a Democratic Society. We felt that we had to build we call it the underground now, but I mean, we, we felt that we had to build the capacity to survive what we thought of as an impending American fascism. We had to build the capacity to survive it. We had already witnessed massive conspiracy trials staged by the federal government. We had witnessed mass arrests by several state governments. And we decided that we had to build the capacity to survive this fascism um, and to continue to act. We did not want to be um, in the, we didn't want to be captured by lawyers and spending all of our time raising money for a legal defense. We wanted to be on the ground active. We wanted to take the war to the war makers. We wanted to make the war painful for them. Um, And so 
we, we began to build this capacity over a couple of years. But the event that made us as an organization go underground was that there was an accidental bombing in New York City in which three of our comrades, my girlfriend, my best friend, another good friend, were killed. And um, that was in March 6, 1970. And we were, many of us were scheduled to come back to Chicago for conspiracy indictments. And we agreed in instantly that none of us were going to show up. Yeah. So at that point, officially, mid-March 1970, the government knew we weren't coming back and that we had disappeared. And um, that was the beginning officially kind of of what became what came to be called the Weather Underground. And your, your girlfriend at the time, who you talk about in the book, says that um, she, she was, when it came to like building bombs, she seemed to be the one who was like the least... Uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it seemed like she was more hesitant than the others. And a little bit um, like one, one of the things that uh, you mentioned, she said when they went to Cuba to meet with some representatives from Vietnam was that uh, I think I've, the, the quote was like the Vietnamese were only mildly interest, interested in her willingness to die for our cause and much more interested in how uh, we plan to reach our Republican parents. Like, exactly. What? what um, like one of the things about the the BDS movement, for example, is that uh, it's something that Palestinians have asked people in the West and in America say, hey, you know, boycott, divest. Um, and in this case, it seemed like the Vietnamese people who you had reached out to were like, listen, guys, like we appreciate the, <laughs> the effort, but could you just talk to your Republican parents? Like, was that something that um, that you guys were interested in or why, why take the tack? I mean, cause it's a natural question. Why take the tack towards uh, even experimenting with bombs when you have say perhaps other means available? Well, you know, I, I put that passage in there um, to be a bit self-mocking and to be a bit, um, you know, self-critical, but also mainly self-mocking. The, the Vietnamese were appropriately interested in building the widest and broadest anti-war movement in the United States. We were interested in that too. But you have to remember when, when our people met with the Vietnamese in Montreal, in Prague, Czechoslovakia, in Havana, we had already convinced the American people that the war was wrong. So, you know, when I started out, when I was first arrested opposing the war in 1965, something like 30% um, of Americans or 25% of Americans opposed the war. By 1968, 55% of Americans opposed the war. And in the global sense, the overwhelming opinion in Europe, in the third world, was that the American assault on Vietnam was criminal, was wrong. Uh, should be stopped. And that was true in Germany, England, France. So now by 1968, a majority is convinced, including our Republican parents. So, you know, so we go to meet with the Vietnamese and we've got grand plans to make a revolution, right? And they, appropriately for their situation, their position, um, are supportive of us, but in a very mild way. They basically are saying, build the movement, build the movement. We didn't disagree with that, but we were determined. And, 
And interestingly, just to put it all in context, it wasn't like the willful actions of a small group of American kids. This was a phenomenon happening worldwide that not only was there you know, revolution going on worldwide, not only was the world in flames, but in England, the angry brigades, in Italy, um, the uh, Red, Red Army faction, in Germany, Bader Meinhof. I mean, these things were happening everywhere, all over Latin America, the Tupamaros and so on. So it wasn't like we were operating just out of the, you know, the idiocy of our own minds. We were actually part of a phenomenon that was worldwide. And in our own country, there was the Black Liberation Army, and not just them, there was also the Republic of New Africa, there was also uh, Mexico, you know, there was also the uh, Puerto Rican independence movement. There were many undergrounds. Right. And so we, we took the Vietnamese, we, we, we reified, we honored the Vietnamese and we, um, and we romanticized them in some ways. So we took them seriously. We certainly listened hard to what they were saying. And I kind of describe in the book, you know, them sitting at the hotel in the terrace and the rest of us, you know, no, I wasn't there, but my girlfriend and Bernadine and others, you know, dancing wildly into the night, getting high and the Vietnamese, you know, smiling, you know, patronizingly at us. I mean, we were kids. And so you know, there was all that going on. But I don't think that the, that that uh, we took. And frankly, we had conversations internationally with lots and lots of groups, including the Red Army faction, including the Tupamaros, including the Cubans, including other uh, Che Guevara kind of movements in which we compared notes and we tried to figure out what to do. And we weren't simply, um, we certainly weren't nihilistic and we, we weren't simply people who were going off on our own kind of tangent. We were part of a phenomenon and, uh, and proud to be. And we learned a lot from the Vietnamese and from the Cubans and from the South Africans. I'll give you one, one reference that, again, to just take the, the weathermen out from being a unique weirdo thing over here, um, which we, we were, of course. But, um, but um, you know, when Nelson Mandela was on trial for his life at Ravonia, he gave a speech called the Ravonia speech. We memorized large sections of that speech. And in that speech, he explains to the court who are about to sentence him to death or to life in prison. He explains to the court and through the court to the world why armed struggle is important. And it's, it's the most staggering speech. I mean, you know, I remember when the Weather Underground film was at Sundance um, and Bernadine and I were with the filmmakers at the showing and then we went into the press room and one of the reporters from the LA Times, very nice person, um, she said to us at one point, why couldn't you have pursued nonviolence like Gandhi and King and Nelson Mandela? And Bernie looked at her and said, Nelson Mandela? She said, yeah, you know, Gandhi and King and Nelson Mandela. And she said, what was Nelson Mandela in prison for? And the reporter said, well, for opposing apartheid. That's right, and leading an army of armed insurrection against apartheid. So, you know, she didn't say it that way, but the point being that in America, we like to divide people into kind of neat categories. So if Nelson Mandela is a hero, 
in the, in, in the 2000s, right, when he finally is released from prison, he used to be a terrorist the day before, but when he becomes a hero in the American mind, then he must have been nonviolent. But it's not true. Um, he led an army, and he explained in the Ravonia speech how you move from armed propaganda to armed struggle to insurrection to revolution. He explains it very clearly. We believed it. And we were trying to build, as I say, a structure that could survive what we considered impending American fascism and take the war to the war makers. That's what we wanted to do. Yeah, that and that documentary you mentioned is uh, the, the Weather Underground doc was, uh, I mean, it was really good. And there's, there's um, uh, a lot of different people are in it um, and like newsreels from that time, like... Uh, uh, Fred Hampton, who I, I know you a- attended his funeral, so there was obviously some relationship there. He he, relationship. he seemed. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember his quote. He said something like, uh, "Someone." I can tell you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can tell me. We'll, we'll, please. Well, first of all, you're, you're thinking of the Weather Underground movie uh, by Sam Green and Bill Siegel. Okay, the movie, the whole, uh, that, that was one. And then prior to that, D- Emile D'Antonio, when we were underground, made a movie called Underground with Haskell yes. Wexler yeah. and Mary Lampson. And interest, interestingly, Mary Lampson is one of the editor producers of Crip Camp. So just to make all the connections. But but yeah, so so what Hampton says in, in that documentary is he he's giving a talk and he's denouncing the weathermen um, for uh, an action, the days of rage, where we rampaged through the North Shore. And he felt that it was bringing down repression on him and his community. And he said, the weathermen are customistic. I, I, I can't remember all of it. Adventuristic, customistic, nihilistic, something like that. And he kind of denounces the action. So yeah, we, we were disappointed um, in that. But 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 we were very close to Fred and to the other Panthers. We were entangled with them in many ways. Um, we had offices a mile apart on Madison Avenue in Chicago. And, um, you know, Fred did say that. And we did have an argument about it. Fred, they could have found another clip where Fred said, we have to off the pigs and do it right now. I mean, you know, in other words, you know, these are editorial choices that people make. I don't dismiss what Fred said. I think he did. He was angry at us for, for this action, but he was also preparing his own underground. And so it's not, you know, it's just not, um, you know, the, the bizarre thing when I think back on those days, you may know who Tom Hayden was, one of the founders of SDS and a mm-hmm. state legislator in California. We met with Tom many times in 1969, 70, because he was building an underground in Berkeley called the Red Family. And, you know, it's, so it's not as, it's not as cut and dried as you would think. It's not, but for, in terms of telling a story, which that documentary does, or telling a story like I do in my memoir, I mean, yeah, things like the Vietnamese slowing us down or things like Fred Hampton denouncing that action, they make sense in the context. And there, anyone who's thoughtful when they watch any documentary knows that there's more to the story. And, and what, what a loss that that guy was. The fact that- Well, he was- Fred was 21 years old when he was murdered and um, assassinated by the state. And he was, um, he had been the leader of the NAACP youth chapter in Maywood, uh, uh, Illinois. And he was a a charismatic, brilliant young leader. And yeah, his loss was horrifying and horrible. And 
His loss also, December 4th, 1969, also propelled us <clears throat> to get even more serious about building the underground we were trying to build. Why? Because it was clear they were assassinated. They were beating up and tying up in trials and putting some of our people in prison, but they were killing the black leadership and they were doing it explicitly. They were doing it as a conspiracy from the top of the FBI uh, to the local state's attorney. And we knew it and we saw it coming. So the same week that Fred was killed, some of our people had their apartment trashed by the red squad and they were hung out the windows by their ankles from the fifth floor, threatening them that they were gonna drop them and kill them. Now they didn't, and that's a difference. And that's a privilege by the way, yeah. you know, they didn't kill uh, the four people that they hung out the window. They could have, and they didn't. But they did kill Fred, and they did kill, um, you know, uh, many, many other Panther leaders. I think a film that your listeners would find really engaging is The Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution by Stanley Nelson. Mm -hmm. Stanley's latest film is about the Tulsa um, you know, the white supremacist Tulsa attack. But this film is really, really worth seeing. And way, way, way better, way more important uh, than um, Judas, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is, you know, kind of a weaker, more anemic kind of take on the same moment. It's, um, that, that's one of the things where at the point, and you talk about this in your, your uh, Fugitive Days, where at that point you guys were, in like a hundred mile an hour wind. And as you mentioned, like 6,000 Vietnamese are getting killed every week. And there's it, because this cause is so closely identified to your heart, y y there's gotta be a desperation there too, as well. Like, okay, well, this isn't working. Okay. What, what do we do then? Now, what do we do? Um, no, I think, I think the combination of, of energy and despair, hopefulness and pessimism. I mean, those things were, we were dancing that dialectic. There's absolutely no question. And, and I don't think it was all, you know, clear and peaceful, uh, all clear and, and, and focused and full of light. I think we were in some pretty dark places. And I think it took us um, some time to come out of that. And I credit Bernadine Dorn and Jeff Jones, two of my closest comrades, Bernadine and I have been together for 50 years, but I credit the two of them with pulling us back from the brink and making us survive. And, um, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful, but yeah, despair was part of it. There's no question about it. To see these murders happening all around us, to know that we were not gonna live to see 30 years of age um, and to kind of set our jaw and clench our fist and get ready for it was difficult and took a toll. I mean, and this seems like, like, you know, mental health has, has the discussion around it has evolved like significantly since the 60s, and especially within like activist communities. There's much more focus on self-care and like, OK, don't burn out and all these kinds of things. Um, it seems like and you talked about how there was like a minority of people for for whom the movement meant one thing. And there was a, sort of a constellation around it that was uh, it was almost like a, sort of like a social thing or like um, uh, it, it was something that was dabbled in and you mentioned early on in in your memoir how like um, uh, when, when you're on the, the football team they call you like scrappy and you're like you're like yeah scrappy okay that's <laughs> that's 
but not you know, like, I, actually i say scrappy rhymes with crappy right. i didn't have any skill but i certainly had the 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 will and, and and then when you're you know you're leading a call and response at uh rally that there's a lot of strength in that and uh certainly as a young man uh that that, that validates you on some level do you think there were um there were people i forget the guy's name who mentioned the book but i mean one of the at least one of the people you guys uh was like cw or terry i don't want to misname people but yeah, yeah, yeah. was very um he sounded almost like suicidal like there there are some when you talk about the movies of that time of men proving themselves in war and stuff like that in some ways you guys were um not living that out precisely but on a parallel track and some people wanted the that film to end in a blaze of glory like do you see what like oh yeah did those did those metaphors take over on some level well i would i would put it this way i think I think you described it very well. I think there was a war going on in the hearts and minds of all of us. And it had to do with how, how much commitment and how much, um, how much is commitment um, suicidal? How much is commitment a surrendering of your own mind? And I don't know if you've read Viet Thanh Nguyen's two brilliant novels, The Sympathizer nice. and The Committed. Uh, th these are both phenomenal uh, novels, and and uh, I wrote a note uh, to the author um, after I read The Sympathizer, and it was confirmed again by The Committed, and the note basically said, this novel um, explores a contradiction I've lived with my whole life, and the contradiction is, how do you commit to a cause and maintain the, your own humanity? How do you have a mind of your own? and give yourself to a movement. And frankly, I don't have, any, I'm no closer to an answer to that than I was when I was 20, but I think it's an important territory to explore. So I often, in my own work and in my own teaching, um, I ask people to, you know, draw, to, to, to do a free writer, draw a line between a community and a cult. If I feel that people are moving toward cult-like thinking, I ask them to kind of reflect on what's a community. That's something when you hear the word, you want to be a part of it. A community is great, but doesn't a community always have walls? Doesn't it always keep somebody out? The gay community doesn't keep somebody out. No. Um, and, and, and so the question that you have to fight with, and, and this is also very uncomfortable for Americans. You have to live within contradiction. And we hate that. We want to resolve the contradiction. We want to know, yeah, but which is right? Yeah. Fuck it. You don't know. And, and, the, and so I look at, the, at 1969 and 70, for example, which you're pointing to as moments of, of deep crisis and um, for me personally, but for a group of us, and also a point at which we let go of the dialectic. That is, we let ourselves be sure and the one thing, I, if I've learned one thing over many years of activism, it's that when you're self-righteous, you're certainly wrong. I mean, you may even be right in the conclusion that you came to, but your self-righteousness is wrong. And it should tell you that you're not, you're not dealing properly. But then there's the other side of the problem, Duncan, which is if I live in contradiction, can I act at all? Aren't I always stuck saying, yeah, but... 
Yeah, that's the problem. And the problem is, how do you act and doubt? And I would say for, for me and for a small group of us in, in 1969, 70, we forgot to doubt. It's not that we shouldn't have acted. Mm-hmm. It's that we should not have let go of the, of the capacity to wonder if we were all that. You know, to wonder if we were so fucking right that we could feel self-righteous. And I think that what Bernadine Dorn and Jeff Jones did for us was to pull us back from that brink and say, doubt yourself, reflect a little bit, be a little self-critical, wonder if what you did was so fucking good um, that you have a right to lord it over everybody else. And I think that got us back into a way of living and acting dialectically. But bear in mind, both are problems. Paralysis is a problem. Self-righteousness is a problem. How do you walk that line? And for me, Viet Thanh Nguyen's novels were a really great exploration of that problem, of that dilemma. Yeah, he works at uh, USC. He's he's a big... That's right. Yeah, he's at USC. Did you take a class with him? I didn't take a class with him, unfortunately, but he's, yeah, he's- I mean, I, I read him. I read all of his essays. I read everything that he writes. And I think he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. But if you've not read the committed, go on and read that second one, because he it's the same narrator walking through the same territory, but this time in Paris instead of in California. And, and one of the great lines early in the book, uh, the narrator says, ah, contradiction the universal body order of humanity. I thought, God damn, man, the universal body order of humanity. Yeah, contradiction. It's where we live. And as soon as you think you know everything, think again. So uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So I, I, I just had a, a couple small questions. I, I wanted sure. to ask. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Antifa nowadays? There are some people who look and say, uh, you know, hey, like uh, Chomsky, for instance, you mentioned earlier, and he, he was on the podcast a while back, says that uh, he, think, he thinks that Antifa is a, a gift to the far right because, you know, you're, you're engaging in, in his words, if, if you push things into the realm of violence, then the people who are, are better armed and more vicious are going to be the ones that win. And that's, that's probably not people on the left. Uh, do you have any... Um, thoughts reactions to that or what do you think well you know i I don't quite agree with chomsky who i think is a genius so i would take his opinion over mine Uh, but but no i don't quite agree and i'll tell you why i think antifa is not a gift to the right antifa is an invention of the right and i think that the people i know who identify with antifa um in chicago for example um are really good people and um well you know i i was I'll tell you a quick story and then come back to this. But I was uh, I was a, a peace marshal at, a, at the NATO demonstrations a few years ago. Uh, Bernadine, myself, our friend Vijay Prashad, we were kind of supposed to be like marshals, you know, but they called them peace guides, I think is what we were called. And we were supposed to be kind of um, monitoring, guarding Jesse Jackson and his crew, which we were kind of. But we're old and what, what are we going to do really um but you know so we were kind of part of the infrastructure and right up ahead of us was a group that 
that called themselves anarchists and they were dressed in black. And Vijay and Bernadine and I kept drifting toward them and leaving our post because we loved what, uh, what they loved. We loved their chants. We loved who they were. Uh, we loved their attitude. Um, you know, it was kind of uh, uh, bring it all down. I can't remember their exact chant, but uh, everything's fucked up was something, that, you know, that, and I agree with that. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm the people I know in Chicago, I'm drawn to. And, and like, and Chomsky himself is an anarchist and, and I'm an anarcho-communist and I, and I, and so I'm drawn to the anarchist spirit. I think Antifa has been in, uh, invented in this sense that if you listen to the right-wing commentators on Fox or in the Republican um, House of Representatives, they always say, well, what do you think of Black Lives Matter Antifa? That's, there's no such thing. That's an invention. That's, that's a creation to, to make something scary happen. Uh, when I've been in meetings, I've often been in meetings with kids who identify as Antifa and, um, and I've been in conversations with them. And in those conversations, I'm happy to be critical and to be, um, and to be um, in struggle. Right. But I'm not happy to, to be critical of them outside of being with them. It's right. like, it's like, it's like uh, Occupy. When Occupy happened, a lot of my left liberal and even radical friends were like, oh, what's their goal? What do they think they're going to do? Are they going to overthrow Wall Street? You know, get over yourself. I mean, and, and, you know, people began giving them advice. You should dress better. You should be more articulate. Fuck you. You know, I mean, that's as articulate as I can get. And if you want, if you have a critique of Occupy, go down, get online, speak to the Speak in the public microphone. You know, in other words, you can't stand aside from it and make this criticism. I think that in the main, the 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 actions of the anarchists since the George Floyd, you know, moment episode have been mostly good, and yep. they've been mostly portrayed as evil. And I don't buy it. This guy who was assassinated in Oregon, I mean, in Washington. He had apparently killed someone in um, a white guy had killed somebody in the demonstrations in Portland. Do you remember this? And uh, there was a government assassination of him. William Barr said, good, he's off the street that he was taken out. He wasn't armed at that point. They just took him out. And to me, he had stood up and defended a black person who was going to be shot by a white, you know, mobster. And I think he should be, honored i don't think we should spend our time beating up on, on a guy like that or people like that so i have a complicated feeling but i often feel that you know like people often ask me what are you critical about in terms of the weather underground and my I, I'm, I'm critical of a lot and some of it i can speak about generally but what i what i also tend to think is the New York Times or MSNBC is not the place that I'm going to do a self-criticism because those aren't my people. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do criticism, self-criticism. I'll do dialogue and, and critique with my people, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and so when I have been asked to come to Antifa meetings and, and talk with them, I'm happy to say what I always say publicly, which is the way you judge an action, the way you judge your activities is not by how good you looked on TV or how cool you were with the Molotov cocktail in your hand. The way you judge it is a pedagogical standard. Did you teach 
and did you learn? If you taught and you learned, then we're on the same page. If all you did was perform, I'm not that interested. Yeah. I don't really think that goes anywhere. That's the distinction also I'm making, Duncan, between an activist and an organizer. All organizers are activists, but not all activists are organizers. I want to persuade my comrades who are anarchists and Antifa that they ought to be organizers. And that means their actions have to serve an organizer's purpose. I see. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of uh, equivalency between, you know, smashing windows and say uh, what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. Oh, I mean, there's it's night and day. It's like it's like you can't take a tactic and elevate it to a principle. I mean, there are insurrections you and I approve of. I mean, we approve of the Haitian Revolution. We approve of of uh, the insurrection, um, the, the American insurrection against the British, we approve of those. And then there are insurrections we don't approve of, Jefferson Davis, Hitler, you know, Mussolini, yeah. and yeah. January 6th. Those are insurrections that are meant for the rise of white supremacy, the rise of, of um, you know, of power. And the insurrections we approve of, like the Haitian Revolution, those are insurrections for popular power. So I'm for those. And I don't, I won't reduce any of my critique to a tactic. There are tactics and there are tactics. So even the thing about, and Noam Chomsky knows this, I know he knows it, but even the discussions we have in this country about violence are so superficial. We are living in a sewer of violence. In fact, we ought to took, take yellow police tape and tape it around the entire border of the United States. This is a, this is a crime scene. And, and, and we are living in a sewer of violence. And for people to stand up and try to stop the violence, sometimes carrying a, a weapon of some kind, that's on the right side, you know? And it, it kind of reminds me, you know, this, I posted something recently about Israel has a right to defend itself. Yeah, and the, the Germans literally said, the Nazis said, we have a right to defend ourselves in the Warsaw Ghetto. They literally said that, you know, and, um, and you know, the planters in Virginia had a right to defend themselves against Nat Turner. It all turns everything upside down. Don't get stuck at a tactical discussion when what we ought to be talking about is politics and principles. I, I couldn't agree more. The, the last thing I, I wanted to ask you about, and I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask, what, what was, when all that Obama shit went down, what, what was your reaction? Like, Obama, for w whatever his flaws are, he's definitely not uh, a radical. People on the left have been uh, very vocal and disappointed, or uh, and, and this is, extends back to when he was, you know, at the at Harvard Law Review, you had people on the far left saying, we wish this guy did more. So I, the relationship there, um, I don't know. What, what, what were your thoughts when that was going down? Well, I mean, I had a lot of conflicting thoughts, but I'm probably the only um, radical in America who was not disappointed in the Obama presidency because it was absolutely predictable. He was not a radical. He was not a leftist. He was not a black nationalist. This was all, again, an invention of the right to kind of try to figure him out. Right. I, I wrote a second memoir called Public Enemy, and it begins, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it begins with the Obama um, uh, debating Hillary Clinton 
while he's running for the nomination in 2008. And I had a group of my graduate students over for a potluck. And as we finished our work, somebody turned on the TV. And just when George Stephanopoulos was asking Obama about his relationship with Jeremiah Wright, and he answered what he answered. And then the Stephanopoulos asked him, this was the debate with Hillary Clinton. And Stephanopoulos was a Hillary Clinton plant. So then he says, what about his relationship with Bill Ayers, who bombed the Capitol and never apologized? And Obama said something like, oh, George, um, he's a guy around the neighborhood, an English professor, I think. And uh, he, uh, to blame me for something that happened when I was eight years old, that's ridiculous. Well, my students fell on the floor. I mean, they couldn't believe that we're watching my name beaming to tens of millions of people around the world. And one of the students literally looked at me and said, that guy has the same name as you. And another student helpfully said, that's because they're the same guy. In any case, why would my graduate students know all that history? Why would they? I mean, I'm a professor for fuck's sake, you know, and they knew what they knew. In any case, that was the beginning. And, um, you know, there, there are a couple of things to say about it. One is that um, it, it created a, an unbelievable firestorm around me. Of, not only, I, I always, I've always gotten death threats, but this amped them up to a degree I've never heard of before. And um, we were under constant pressure. And I kept wanting, my kids were very smart. They were like, don't get engaged. Don't talk about it. Don't go on the media, blah, blah, blah. And I would get like, I got a note from Bill O'Reilly saying, I know you're not talking to the media, but would you just answer one question? What's your definition of terrorism? And I wrote to my oldest son and I said, man, I want to answer this question. This is a great question. Let me answer it. And my son said, look, dude, you're watching the roller coaster. Do not get on the roller coaster. So that was good advice. I mean, people held me back, but it was an intense time. It was a crazy time. But what you said in the beginning is absolutely right. In order for a, um, a smear of any kind to stick, it has to either be true or it has to be at least believable. Right. The idea that Obama was a radical was unbelievable or that he supported terrorism, unbelievable. Yes. Just, nobody who knew anything about his record could believe that. He was a moderate, middle of the road, you know, um, cautious um, politician. Yeah. And were we friends? We were friends. Um, and we knew each other around the neighborhood. You know, I mean, our kids went to the same school, you know, our kids babysat his, yeah, so we knew each other. Yeah. But I, I don't actually do a political litmus test on my friends. I don't actually, I don't actually, my, my dad lived with us for a long time. I didn't do a political litmus test on you. I never asked you your politics. So it's just, you know, the idea that in a wildly diverse, insanely complex society like this, that you, um, that talking to other people is somehow a sin is bullshit. And so we knew each other. We never shared a milkshake with two straws. We weren't that close. The, 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 I have a whole set of things, including a quote from Donald Trump about why I wrote how proof that I wrote Obama's memoir. And the subtext is this black dude isn't smart enough to write his own memoir. Oh, the okay. truth is, the truth is Obama's the smartest guy in any room he walks into. Doesn't mean he's a radical, doesn't mean he's a leftist even, but he is very fucking smart. And he's a good writer. Excuse me. No worries. Um, you know, he's very smart. And so um, 
but this this line went down that I wrote dreams from my father. And the, the most hysterical thing that happened after the election was I was walking through the airport in Dulles Airport in DC. And um, a woman came up to me and said, you're Bill Ayers. And I said, I am. And she said, I am from Chicago and I'd like to talk to you. And I said, what do you do? She said, I'm a right wing blogger. And I laughed. And I said, what do you want to talk about? She said, I just want to know one thing. Did you write Obama's memoir? And I thought about it for one second and I had an inspiration. I said to her, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to that if you promise to publish it exactly as I say it. She said, I will. She got out her tape recorder. And I said, I wrote Obama's memoir, every word of it. And if you can help me prove it, I'll split the royalties with you. <laughs> and, she, and she reported it and it became the biggest thing on social media for a week that I had admitted. Yeah. And Donald Trump actually said it a couple of times. Ayers admitted he wrote Obama's memoir. Um, and that's the context in which I admitted it. And um, the funny thing, it took off until Jonah Goldberg, another right-wing writer, said, people, people, stop it. He's pulling your fucking chain. He didn't write it. He's yeah. kidding you. And then it became this kind of circle. I, I had another right-wing guy come up to me and said, now I know you're going to say, yes, you wrote it if you split the proceeds, but tell me the truth. Did you write it? And I said, I did write it. And if you'll split the proceeds, no, I don't want you to say that. I want you to tell me if you wrote it. I said, I did write it. And if you'll split the proceeds, no, tell me the truth. I am telling you the truth. I wrote it. And if you'll split, and he said, fuck it. You know, and, and the point is you can't get out of that once you say it, right? Yeah. If I say, no, I didn't write it, then I'm lying. If I say I did write it, I'm lying. And so that was kind of fun. Did, but, did you ever hear from his camp after, like, in the midst of all of that? Like, hey, Bill, please don't say anything. <laughs> no. no, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't hear from the camp. And I heard from, I, after he was elected in 2008, uh, David, um, suddenly I lost it. David Remnick showed up on my front porch, the editor, the publisher of The New Yorker and editor of The New Yorker. And we had a talk and he published something in The New Yorker. And then I was asked to go on Good Morning America. And I agreed to go on Good Morning America. And I got a frantic phone call from a Democratic activist I know here in Chicago saying, oh, don't go on, that'll fuck things up. And I said, look, I don't work for you guys. You know, I am my own person and I'm not, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a liberal, I'm not in the Obama camp and I can do what I want. And now I feel freed from my own self-imposed silence. So I went on Good Morning America and, you know, basically said what I just said to you, which is in a country like this, to talk to lots and lots and lots of people uh, and have them and maintain your own, position is a strength, not a weakness. And so the fact is, I know a lot of conservatives, I know a lot of liberals, and I am a radical, I'm a anarchist communist, and I'm and I always have been. But that doesn't mean I don't talk to people or know people or like people. You know, that it's not just, you know, the stereotypes we have of political people are so crazy. And what did somebody ask me a funny question the other day? Um, oh, yeah, it was about this, this culture war about telling the truth of American history, you know, and uh, is it a communist plot? And I said, communists aren't the only people who search for the truth and are curious, but also all communists aren't searching for the truth and aren't curious. So, you know, I, I like people who are curious and 
and investigating. I think those are good qualities and let's tell the truth about our history and that won't hurt anybody. That'll be good for us. Oh, it'll hurt power actually, but that's a good thing. Uh, Bill, you have been exceedingly generous with your time. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I did enjoy it. It's great to meet you and I hope that we meet again. Thanks, Duncan. Absolutely. Take care, Bill. You too. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you to Bill Ayers and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.